I'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter 11 uh, through the whole chapter and then half of chapter 12. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers and the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt and from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all that I command you so that you may be my people and I will be your God. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is to this day. Then I said, Amen, O Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning them persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. And yet they did not incline or obey. They walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, and they did not. But the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been formed among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors and refused to hear my words. And they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the shameful thing. Altars burn incense to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry of prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can the sacrificial flesh take away from your disaster so that you can rejoice? The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful and fruit in form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. The Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. Moreover, the Lord made it known to me and I knew it. Then you shall show me their deeds. And I will be, I was like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised plots against me saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for you have committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, so that you will not die at our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters will die by famine. 
and a remnant will not be left to them, for I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my cause with you. I indeed would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal treacherously at ease? You have planted them. They have taken root. They grow. They even produce fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude towards you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have snatched away because men have said, He will not see our latter ending. If you run with footmen and have tired you out, how then can you compete with horses? If you fall down in the land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, even though they say nice things to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me, therefore I have come to hate her. Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? Are the birds of prey against her on every side? Go gather all the beasts of the field. Bring them to the devourer. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation. Desolate, it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. On all the bare heights in the wilderness, destroyers have come. For a sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land to the other. There is no peace for anyone. They have sown wheat. They have reaped thorns. They have strained themselves to no profit, but be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord concerning my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I am about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. Then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Heavenly Father. May we listen and hear your words to this nation and realize that you desire in your people holiness and purity and that we not follow after the world. Use the words this morning to open our eyes and our hearts and draw us to you. Be with Tom as he shares with us and may your Holy Spirit prick our hearts and guide us and help us to surrender to your will. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. What do you do when God commands you to speak in His name, on His behalf, to say what He says to the world and to His people, but you don't quite understand why He is 
instructing you to say those things. Perhaps you don't understand why He would command you to say things to people who clearly don't want to hear them. Who've actually already proven that they're going to reject them. In fact, God is telling you that they will reject them. Why would God have you make people angry when you see no hope of changing their minds or their hearts? Why would He require you to offend people that are really important to you? People from your own community, your own family. Wouldn't it be much better for Him to let you be at peace with them and not rock the boat? Or maybe, on the other hand, you don't understand why God would be so persistent, so forbearing in setting before a people who has rejected Him the opportunity to return. People who have demonstrated that they despise His ways. Why would He wait so long to judge them? Why would He want (laughs) you to keep telling them over and over what He has to say to them? Based on our passage this morning, Jeremiah struggled with those same kinds of questions and doubts. Uh, There's a little book, probably one of the shortest commentaries on Jeremiah that you'll find by Derek Kidner. This thing is golden. Uh, If you want the kind of overview of the book of Jeremiah that we're attempting to do in this series, this book is, uh, is a marvelous resource. Kidner taught for many, many years, and he studied the Old Testament uh, very, very diligently. And it was his book, it was his treatment of these two chapters that really got my attention. The passage here begins with a call by God to his people through his prophet Jeremiah. And the call is to, quote, hear the words of this covenant. Well, which covenant? Well, he says, the covenant that I gave to my people in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. See, he's telling Jeremiah to present to the people a thousand-year-old revelation that God had given to them in the days of Moses. The marvelous covenant in which he called them out from among all the peoples of the earth to be his treasured possession, to walk in his ways, and then he revealed those ways to them. He gave them the gracious law of God that showed them principle by example what the character of God was like and how, it, how that character worked out in their dealings with Him and with men. The nation of Judah had just rediscovered that marvelous covenant, that thousand-year-old covenant. Second Chronicles 34 explains that in the 18th year of King Josiah, During his reign in Judah, the high priest Hilkiah discovered in the temple a copy of, quote, the book of the law of Yahweh by Moses. That instruction of Yahweh was discovered after generations of being forgotten and set aside by God's people. Judah finally had a king who was zealously devoted to hearing and acting upon all that God had to say. In fact, the highest commendation that God ascribes to any single king in the history of Israel and Judah is ascribed to Josiah. Now you might say, no, it's ascribed to David. I would contradict that. 
Second Chronicles 34.2 says of Josiah, He did right in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That last part, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left, is said of only one king in the entire history of Israel and Judah, and that king is Josiah, not David. But Judah had a huge problem. Josiah's devotion to the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not trickle down from the king to the people. Listen to what God said to Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 27 and 28. He said, Josiah, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before Me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares Yahweh. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And listen to this last part. So your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. God declared that He would withhold His harsh judgment against Judah until after King Josiah died. But he did not say, Josiah, because of your godliness, Judah will be spared my judgment. The godliness of a people is never a top-down proposition. Having a godly ruler does not guarantee godliness in the people under his rule. People generally get the rulers that they deserve. But Judah did not deserve a godly king like Josiah. And I believe it's in that regard that King Josiah most directly foreshadows Christ. If I understand Revelation 19 correctly, there is a time coming when Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God, is going to reign on earth for a thousand years before He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And He is going to rule over all the nations in perfect righteousness and justice. But at the end of that thousand year reign, what's going to happen with the people? Many of them are going to come up in mass in rebellion against the perfect king. Friends, righteousness is not contagious. It has to be given, not caught. In every age, the one and only way that men come to have hearts inclined toward God is by the redeeming grace of God through faith alone in the gospel promises of God that are are fulfilled by Christ alone. God's assignment for Jeremiah in this passage was very clear. He was to proclaim the requirements the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant just as God had revealed them through Moses a thousand years earlier. He was to proclaim them in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem so that every Judahite would know what God required of them and what He had declared that He would do to them if they violated His covenant, which was exactly what they had been doing for a very long time. And that's what Jeremiah did. If you want to know the essence of that proclamation to which God had called him, this passage is only a a little bit of a, a glancing blow off of that 
content. If you want to look at the content, go back to the Pentateuch. And if you want to get specific with the requirements, the blessings, and the curses, the most condensed version of that is in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. Go read it, and you'll understand a whole lot better what was going on here. Jeremiah did not compromise or soft-pedal or in any way adjust or tweak anything that God told him to pass on to Judah. He said what God said. As Jeremiah fulfilled this very painful assignment from God, God told him that Judah would not be able to escape the calamity that would soon come upon them by God's hand. They would not receive the call to repentance that he was so graciously setting before them through Jeremiah. God said to Jeremiah here in chapter 11 what he had said in verse in chapter 7. He said, do not pray for this people. It was too late for Jeremiah to ask God to spare Judah from the coming punishment. The time had already passed for that opportunity. How would you like to be given Jeremiah's assignment? How would you like it if God sent you to tell your community, your co-workers, your friends, even your immediate family, that he was about to judge them harshly? That he was about to disrupt their lives at a level they couldn't even imagine and that many of them would die? Some of you in this room know what it's like to tell people that you love dearly what God says and to have them reject it very stridently. Some of you have faithfully spoken the truth in love to acquaintances, friends, co-workers, and even to members of your very own family, only to see them steadfastly reject that truth. This book and everything in the Bible says that in doing so you have done very well. In the last part of chapter 11, God tells Jeremiah how his words were already being received by Judah, and it wasn't pretty. The Judahites were already plotting to kill Jeremiah for saying what God said. Even the priestly community of Anathoth, the the city in which Jeremiah had grown up, was saying to him, to Jeremiah, do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh that you might not die at our hand. They gave him only one way to put their efforts to kill him out of the way, and that is stop saying what God says. Stop saying what God says. That reminds me of Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were arrested by the temple authorities in Jerusalem, those authorities said first to each other, what shall we do with these men? For for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. I think that might have made an impression on them. <laughs> and they said, but in order that, that it might not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, 
you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Jeremiah took that same approach. He could not stop saying what God had commissioned him to say, even, even when he struggled to understand why God had given him that commission and what God was going to accomplish through it. In chapter 11, verse 18 to 12:11, really all the way to 12:17, we see Jeremiah's lament and God's response. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. There are many passages in this, in this book in which he is expressing lamentation over the state of affairs in Judah. And he's even expressing lamentation over God's handling of that state of affairs. And that's what he does here. In 11.19, Jeremiah says, But I was like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. Does that sound familiar? About a hundred years before Jeremiah's time, another prophet wrote very similar words. The prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 52.13-53.12. In 53.7, Isaiah wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. That passage from Isaiah 53 is talking about the perfect prophet, the suffering servant, the Son of God, Jesus. And it was written nearly 700 years before he came and perfectly fulfilled it. When we say what God says, we will suffer as Christ suffered. Both Testaments make that crystal clear. But Jeremiah goes a different direction with his lament about being a lamb led to the slaughter than the suffering, suffering servant of God did in Isaiah 53 because that servant, that perfect servant of God, did not open his mouth in protest. This servant of God did. Jeremiah cries out to God in verse 20 of chapter 11. He says, But O Yahweh of hosts who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. That other servant, on the other hand, while while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In verses 22 to 23 of Jeremiah 11, God actually does say that He's going to exact that vengeance that Jeremiah is asking for. He says, Behold, I am about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters will die by famine. And a remnant will not be left, not be left to them. For I will bring disaster, calamity on the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. But friends, that's not where God's response to Jeremiah's lament ends. And that's very important. That's not where God's intention toward Judah ends. And that's very important. At the beginning of chapter 12, Jeremiah continues his appeal to God to deal with his persecutors. He says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. 
And when he says, I will discuss matters of justice with you, the words that follow make it pretty apparent that he's not happy with the way God is handling matters of justice. He says, why has the way of the wicked prospered? Read Psalm 73, you'll see that same question. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow and they even produce fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. That's a, that's a powerful statement. Near to their lips, but far from their mind. And then he says, but you know me, O Yahweh. You see me and you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. He's saying, Jeremiah's saying, I should not be the one who is like a sheep to be slaughtered. They should. Why are you doing things this way, God? Jeremiah considered God's handling of the situation to be missing the mark of justness. He was allowing the wicked to prosper and to persecute him while he was doing everything that God had commissioned him to do. Why would God do that? Starting in chapter 12, verse 5, we see God's response to Jeremiah's lament. And actually, the first part of it comes before that. But in chapter 12, verse 5, um, God says to Jeremiah, it's a very interesting statement, He answers Jeremiah's question first with a question of his own. He says, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? That verse is at the heart of Eugene Peterson's devotional commentary on the book of Jeremiah called Run with the Horses. God is telling Jeremiah in response to his protest that things are about to get a lot harder, not a lot easier. He's saying, Jeremiah, so far you have only had to keep up with the footmen in this battle, but I am requiring you to keep up with the horses. So far, he had only had to deal with persecution in a time when the rebellious behavior of Judah had been held in check through the leadership of a godly king who was on the same side as Jeremiah. The land had been in a state of relative peace during the first part of Jeremiah's ministry, but all of that was about to change very dramatically. And Jeremiah's ministry was just getting started. Brothers and sisters, if you think that God has given you too much to bear, if you think that His assignment to you is too great. Don't be surprised if His word to you is that you're just getting started and it's going to get a lot worse. If we understand that our God is an overflowing fountain of living waters as He declared to Jeremiah in chapter 2 and as Jesus declared to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, then it's okay that the burden, that the struggle, that the fight is going to get harder because our resource is an overflowing well. I have to say, guys, that when 
when we finally start to live with that as our reality, it changes a whole lot. There are so many Christians who live day by day from a place of weakness and need when God intends for us to live as overcomers who are plugged into the fountain of living waters. It has nothing to do with filling your schedule too full. It's about living life knowing that you serve and are fed by the fountain of living waters. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal upon you, uh, among you that comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a very different way of living. In chapter 12, verse 6 of Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, things are already worse than you think they are. He tells him that his own family is being duplicitous toward him. He says they're saying nice things to his face, but they're on the same side as the rest of Judah that has turned its face away from God. His own family. By the time we get to chapters 37 and 38, Jeremiah is accused of betraying his own people and siding with their mortal enemy, the Chaldeans. He's accused of being a traitor. And that's instructive to us as well. Saying what God says got Jeremiah labeled not merely as unpatriotic, but as treasonous. And that should get our attention. Because truly saying what God says to this world, to this nation, and even to God's church will not get us labeled as patriots. It will get us labeled as enemies. In verses 7 through 11 of chapter 12, God shifts the focus from the people's persecution of Jeremiah to the people's betrayal of Yahweh himself. In effect, he says to Jeremiah, my people's betrayal against you is nothing compared to their betrayal against me. He says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. And this is from the God who defines both love and hate in terms of action. And he's talking about what he's about to do to Judah. And then finally, in the very last verses of this passage, in chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, God turns his attention to the pagan nations that were about to come up against Judah as God's own instruments of judgment against his people. And he promises to do two things toward those pagan nations. First, to judge them, uprooting them from their own lands, and then to have compassion on them. If they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people, in the midst of my people, 
Read Isaiah 19 sometime. When God talks about Assyria and Egypt as two of the three partners in in His people. Israel being the third. Those verses, Jeremiah 12, verses 12 to 17, give us a glimpse of God's ultimate intention, not just toward the nations, but toward Judah. His judgment against His own people was inevitable. Praying that that judgment would be averted was pointless. It was going to happen. They were going to be carried away into a harsh captivity by the judgment of God because of generations of apostasy and idolatry. Jeremiah would live to see God avenge the persecution that he was suffering at the hands of these faithless Judahites, but that judgment would not be the end of God's intention for Judah. He would redeem and restore them just as He had uprooted them from the land promised to their fathers and sent them into foreign lands, He says now that He will uproot them from those distant lands and bring them back. And His ways would finally become Judah's ways. And many people, even from the nations that He had used to judge Israel and Judah, would come to walk in those godly ways and would dwell in the midst of His people where He will dwell. Jeremiah had been appointed to declare all of these things, and so he did. He faithfully proclaimed all that God had said, even when he didn't understand it, even when he didn't like it, even when it looked unjust to him. Jeremiah did what God told him to do. He said what God had said. There are some lessons here for us that must not be missed. The church bears the prophetic role in the world today. God has commissioned us to say what He says, both to the world and to His church. Not to say what we want to say, not to say what people want to hear, but to say what He says. In our young adult study recently, we looked at what the Scriptures say about how our words actually have authority on earth. And you know how that happens? Only one way. When we say what God says. In case anyone thinks that those categories overlap, that men will generally want to hear what God says or that we'll always want to say what God says, <laughs> Jeremiah is living proof that that's not how it works. The simple stark reality that we encounter throughout the Bible is that zealous disapproval and fierce opposition by most of mankind is guaranteed to us if we say what God says. Now you might think that only applies if we say what God says about sin and righteousness and judgment. But beloved, the same reality applies if we say what God says about forgiveness and redemption. In just the last few days, many Christians rejoiced to see a young man named Brant Jean publicly forgive the woman who had been convicted of senselessly killing his brother. Brant told that woman in open court that he forgave her, that he loved her, and then fighting back tears, he exhorted her to give her life to Christ. He told her that that's what his brother, the man that she had killed, would want for him that she would give her life to Christ. And then with the judge's permission, he walked over and hugged the woman who had killed his brother. The next day he explained that getting up and hugging her, that, that his motivation for doing so was 
so that she would have better evidence than just his words that his forgiveness was sincere. If the weight of comments that were posted online under the YouTube video accounts of those two events is any indication, the majority response has been to vilify that young man for announcing his forgiveness of the defendant. Many people said that he betrayed his race and his family, that he trivialized the long history of terrible abuses of white cops against black citizens. And guys, I am not going to argue with that accusation. I will argue that that's with the accusation that that's what he did, that that's what Brandt did. But I won't argue with the accusation that those abuses exist. I don't want to get off into that, guys. But I want to say just one thing. I listened to a conservative Republican black senator talk about how he had been pulled over 13 times in one year without so much as a, as a taillight out. There's something wrong with that picture. Okay? But that's not what Brandt was dealing with at all. That's not what was, that's not what that whole event was a part, was about. Many said that Brandt's public forgiveness of a woman who had just been convicted of murdering his brother made a mockery of justice. And more than a few said that he misrepresented Christianity. Listen to this, guys. People tend to be very receptive to the idea of God's forgiveness until you say one of two things about that forgiveness. First, that they don't deserve it in any way. And second, that that forgiveness has been given to someone that they don't think deserves it in any way. Either of those things will cause your proclamation of God's free gift of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ to become repugnant to the people who are hearing it. If you say without compromise what God says about sin and righteousness and judgment, people will oppose and persecute you. And if you say without compromise what God says about grace, redemption, and forgiveness, people will oppose and persecute you. If you say without adjustment or compromise what God says, people will call you a traitor and an enemy and a hate monger and they will seek your undoing just as they did in Jeremiah's case. And make no mistake, the worst opposition of all will come from people who claim to be on God's side. In John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus said to His own disciples, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that He is doing a service to God. That's how this works. You know what that means for us as the people of God? It means that if the approval of men has any place in our motivation for saying what God has appointed us to say, we won't say it. We won't say it. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul said, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's one or the other, beloved. You can please God or you can please men. You can serve God or you can serve men. But there's one thing you can never possibly do, and that's both. 
And when we do choose to serve God, to say what He says to the world and even to His people, His agenda does not include going easy on us. Jeremiah's life and ministry was thankless as far as the gratitude of men was concerned. And it was difficult at a level that very few people would be willing to take on. In at least one respect, most of us have it better than Jeremiah did. His community, even in his own hometown, consisted of people who had turned their face away from God. Even in his own family. We have the church. We have brothers and sisters whose hearts have been made new and inclined toward God, whose nature, whose new nature, is to love and trust and serve and to walk with the living God. We don't always behave in a way that matches up with that nature, but guys, as, a, as the redeemed of God, that's our nature. We've been made new in Christ in the righteousness and holiness of the truth, Ephesians 4. When the world opposes us, most of us don't have to go very far to be in the company of others who are with us, not against us. But there are many believers on the front lines of the advancement of the kingdom of God in many places in this world who don't have that luxury. And we need to be praying for them zealously, faithfully. But in all cases and in all places, God is our help, our advocate, our rock, our refuge, our defender. No matter how great the opposition, even if it results in the loss of our lives, nothing in all of God's creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in every place on earth, God is preparing hearts to hear and to heed His gracious calling. We just have to say what He says and live lives that adorn that message. He's the one who will save the lost souls of men and women and children through our faithful proclamation of His Word. We just have to say what He says. To speak the truth in love and humility in every place to every person. Dear Father, Make us like Jeremiah. Make us say what you say no matter what it costs because we trust you, not us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.